Hello and welcome to The Books That Made Me, a podcast about the books that hold a special significance to my guests, whether because it brings up special memories, resonated with them, or simply brought joy to their lives. I hope you will learn more about my guests and be inspired by their stories. So curl up with us and let's dive in. Really good friend who likes to have deep conversations and bring up the hard stuff. Which, you know, at first glance, you'd be like, hashtag authentic, like, okay, it's a hashtag. And the <laughs> the book cover is a picture of her holding a camera. It's like, okay, this sounds cheesy. But when you get into the book, and if you've listened to her podcast or seen her social media, it's like you're invited into her world. And it's so real. It's so raw. It's so authentic. And I... I love that. And I relate to that because, excuse me. Um, My guest today is Kim Best, who is a certified music therapist. Um, And I'm wondering kind of what music therapy is and who is it specifically targeted to? Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me. Um, I'm so excited for our conversation. So music therapy. Okay. Because the word music is in it. It gets confusing. It gets ambiguous. It's this creative art that um, is not easy to, because it's so, it's so vast. Um, So music therapists work um, with many different modes of doing music therapy. So you can do music therapy specifically for rehabilitation. You can do music therapy specifically for relational issues, more of the uh, psychotherapy aspect. You can use music therapy in an activity way where you do an activity and you help someone reach a goal and, and like say that word or do that thing. Um, so music therapists work all over. It's so it's so broad. So music therapists, you'll find them in in hospitals. You'll find them in rehab centers, in people's homes, um, working with women in labor. It's just so broad. Um, so a couple different examples that are easy to understand are working with a child on the autism spectrum, helping them with social cues. So I would create a song to help them learn, okay, this is the appropriate time to say, you know, X, Y, and Z, or this is the appropriate way to socialize with your friend. Um, And that can actually be really pertinent for this time of life (laughs) where we're teaching others how to be socially distanced and stay safe and healthy. Another example is working with um, people who have a diagnosis of cancer and you can help them with music therapy, process what they're going through, process what the future looks like. Um, And oftentimes music therapists help people decrease their pain or decrease the perception of pain. So I've done a lot of my work in hospice care and the end of life. And the intervention or activity that I like to do to help people decrease their pain or 
help decrease the perception of their pain is um, play the flute. So I'm a classically trained flutist. That was my main instrument in college. And I'll play an unfamiliar, uh, soft and soothing song on the flute. And I encourage someone to close their eyes, maybe open themselves up to any imagery that comes by. And nine times out of 10, that person forgets about their pain or falls asleep, which I find that to be a win. (laughs) Um, Another example, uh, well-known, is um, the congresswoman, who had been shot in the head. I think this was about maybe seven years ago now, five, five, seven, six, seven years ago. And throughout her rehabilitation, she worked with a music therapist to regain her speech. And so in music, while learning and studying, we learn all about the brain, we learn all about the body, and we learn about how music interacts with the body and the mind, and what's going on and what kind of music and what what are those little musical elements to help motivate change? Or even a great example, what we hone in on as music therapists is like, if you've ever, if you've ever been to like a mall or something, people are sitting down and there's music overhead. Sometimes you see that person tapping their foot just to the beat of the song. And that person is completely unaware that they're doing it. So what we do is we we take those elements where these things naturally happen in our body when we hear music, a rhythm, and then we take that to our advantage to help create change and help someone reach a goal. Thank you for clarifying that. I think, you know, when you were explaining it, I was like, ah, because when I think of music therapy, like you said before, working with... um children with special needs I, that's what I was thinking of and I work with mm-hmm. students with special needs but I don't work with um younger children so then I feel like the older ones that I work with they don't necessarily use music therapy anymore or don't at all mm-hmm. so I'm wondering for the students with disabilities like a child with autism are there specific sounds or instruments that you use for specific disabilities or for specific uh, rehab that that's such a good question um and I know there, there are studies out there that may not be as widely scientifically tested as music therapy, something like sound healing, where they believe or they, they study how certain sounds affect people in a certain way. With music therapists, we don't really not very much. More we do is use bird music. Because what we know is that preferred music is more connected to us, more exciting, more engaging. And then those preferred songs are what we use or that that style of music. So when I'm working with um, children or adults with intellectual or developmental disabilities, I tend to use pop music because they love it. They love whatever was popular on the radio either that year or when they were younger so we'll use pop music because it's very engaging very exciting for them um and then 
And then as a contrast, when I'm working with older adults, I use music, well, depending on their age, I use music from when they were in their um, teens, 20s, 30s, because that's the music that we remember most. That's kind of lodged in our long-term memory. So with the older adults, I'm singing songs from like the 30s, 40s, (laughs) 50s. Um, so that's that's the music that we use. And then we use all different instruments. So I primarily use guitar. I sing. Um, but we also are trained on piano, percussion, and then we have a little bit of training on on the other instruments, depending on if we need to use it or not. So when you said you were a flautist um, mm-hmm. at college, were you initially looking to go into becoming a musician before becoming a music therapist? Or was it always the plan? Yeah, it was always music therapy and kind of made up my mind on that in high school. I, um, you know, I, I flute and singing and that's, that's a story for another day, but, um, I, I wanted to be initially a, um, just a performer, you know, playing an orchestra or an, and then I realized it was very competitive, <laughs> For flutists, I can't make it. So, and then the other thing was, I love people. That's just, it's in my nature. It's what I enjoy doing most with my life. And then I got really interested in speech therapy. Mm. So before I even heard about therapy, I was like, oh, helping people regain their speech. Like, that is awesome. I looked into speech therapy visited a couple schools and then I was like oh gosh there's just like a little too much science for me (laughs) (laughs) and I didn't want to give up the music music has been part of my life every day for forever my mom's a singer we sang in church like the whole thing um so then I looked into music therapy and it was like the best of both worlds helping people doing some sort of rehabilitation or um, helping people express themselves using music every day. Um, and then it's funny because when I got to college and, and we started our clinical rotations, my first rotation was in a speech clinic. So it was like the coolest thing to be interested in speech therapy, go into music therapy, and then work alongside um, a speech therapy student and help this older gentleman regain his speech and be able to say his name again it was I feel your passion when you talk about um music therapy and and, you know being a music therapist and when I looked at your um your website your blog um and you said that you wanted to leave at one point um Mm -hmm. and you felt like you weren't the everyday music therapist why is that did you have such a negative experience that you didn't want to well first of all thank you for reading my stuff (laughs) (laughs) I love finding that out. Um, Yeah. So, so I guess we can circle back to like one of the first things I said, music therapy is so misunderstood. Music therapy is, it's this creative art that people don't really get. Sometimes people think that I'm, I'm a music educator. I'm helping people learn music, which is totally not the case. Some people think I'm just like the fun music lady, you know, coming into the nursing home playing music. And I'm like, no, 
there's all these goals, there's all this science behind everything I'm doing. Um, so because of that, um, because of the nature of music therapy, it, it, the field itself is very challenging to be part of. Um, it's like day in and day out, you have to prove yourself and not only yourself, but you have to prove the entire field and profession of music therapy. It's like any door I walk into, the question on the other side is, what is music therapy? And like, explain that to me, which I, it's like, I have a love and hate relationship with it. I love explaining what I do, but at the same time, it's kind of like an extra weight, an extra labor that I carry around. And then along with that, music therapy is not widely recognized. Because it's not widely recognized, there are fewer jobs. It's harder to get a job or create a new program. Um, there isn't the same kind of insurance funding for music therapy that there is for any other kind of therapy. It's like music therapy is an amazing field, but there are all these challenges and barriers. It's like I'm living an obstacle course with my profession, which I am hoping to write a book on because I, I have this this passion inside of me to help other music therapists, especially new music therapists who are going through these challenges for the first time. Like, why am I not getting paid what I need to get paid with, with this um, college degree and certification and all this supervised training? And why aren't my notes going into the same um, medical system that the doctor and the social work and the chaplain's notes are going into. And it's like, we're always fighting a system that doesn't understand this creative art. So my, my new, <laughs> my new venture with my business is to help and support new music therapists who are navigating all of this for the first time. And then also trying to help music therapists um, create their own private practice and their own business because I think that might work a little easier for many of us. No, I mean, I now I feel awful for asking you what music therapy well, is. I hope you, you don't. Explain yourself. I love, I love <laughs> educating people on what it is because it's so misunderstood. So it's like we need to have these conversations. And now that you know, you can tell the next person about it, and maybe I don't have to do it as much. <laughs> <laughs> So when you're saying that, you know, you had to hold the weight when you're explaining these things, I feel like your first book is kind of similar to, I think a lot of people don't understand this as a job, which is being an influencer. So your next, your first book is Hashtag Authentic by Sarah Tasker. I don't know who she is, so you might have to explain who she is, but she, I'm guessing, I'm guessing from her book, she's an influencer. And I think a lot of people don't, today, you know, like an older generation, they don't understand how it is a job. So it's kind of similar in some mm -hmm. ways that your job is misunderstood. That kind of job is misunderstood. And this is, you know, one of the books that you chose. Mm -hmm. So tell me who, who was Sarah Tosca to you and who is she? Oh my goodness. She, I, I find that, you know, talking about the, the profession of music therapy and music therapists, we're fighting so hard just for what we do, just to be seen as professionals that we lose that side of us. That's like, let me just talk about this and 
and share with my peers that this is hard and this is challenging. So I feel like this book has been a nice guide for me to um, allow myself to be that authentic person um, in the public light, on social media, with anyone and everyone I talk with. And I've just recently shifted my business a little bit to speak more to music therapists um and they music therapists have already reached out to me to say thank you for saying the things that no one says thank you for sharing your story because it echoes parts of my story thank you for being this real person online that I can relate with and I can share my difficulties with, you know, part of what I do as a music therapist and just as a person is um, I want to help people have a safe space to express themselves. And so this book is like the way to do that on Instagram. So she's. So we, oh, sorry. No, no, go for it. I was just going to. She's like the Instagram guru. <laughs> yeah, because when I looked up the book, it said that, you know, she was a guru. And I was like, oh, I mean, you know, how does she be- how did she become such a guru, you know? And I think uh, when I looked up the book, there were some exercises to follow that you're saying, you know, a gu- you're using it as a guide to help you kind of understand how you can grow your business better. Um, right. So what kind of examples does she give you or what kind of ex- exercises does she ask you to do? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, the book is beautiful. So that's like the first exercise in a, in and of itself is like, let's look at beautiful photography. (laughs) (laughs) And so she, she has exercises. Let's see, I have the book right here. So um, this is just one page magic in the mundane. First of all, doesn't that sound just so poetic? (laughs) Yes. (laughs) And um, So the exercise is, okay, first of all, before you take any pictures and before you post to Instagram, let's hone in on um, what these magical moments are in your everyday life. So she says, for example, my list would look something like the little drawings my daughter doodles in the steam on the bathroom windows. Of the espresso maker on the AGA brewing my first cup of the day, lighting a candle at starting work my hair up in a piece of vintage ribbon it's like she's she's putting these beautiful descriptors of what these ordinary parts of her day looks like and then she's having us capture those moments for ourselves so write down those things that we notice you know like sitting right here I I should take a picture of this I have books sprawled out on my bed. My bed is messy and unmade, but the colors are beautiful. Got some teal and warm grays and this pillow cascading over all the blankets. Like, wouldn't you like to see what that looks like? Yes, I do. (laughs) (laughs) So this book is just, it's beautiful. It's fun. And I just love it with great photography in it. I teach how how you can um take better photos and what what type of photos what types of um 
like the look of a photo or the symmetry of a photo, what catches people's eye. So it's, it's a good one. So when you're saying that, um, you know, you're showing your authentic self on Instagram stuff that I had my issue with social media is that, you know, we are always presenting this best selves of ourselves. Um, you know, this, this filtered version, this like p- perfect version. And I, I love that you on your stories, you know, and I think a couple of other people that I follow as well, they, they show, you know, that you're authentic self, you know, your head, you know, just come out the shower or just you know, <laughs> rolled out of bed or, you know, you're having, you just, you know, hanging out at home and it's you're wearing your sweats, you know? And I, I love that you have the confidence to do that. I don't know if I, at the moment, I'm not really doing that. I'm not really showing my face. Mm-hmm. I'm not really, um, I guess, showing my authentic self, which I know can hinder me. But then what is it that gives you the confidence to do that? Is it this book or is it something else? Well, I want to first preface that um, being so vulnerable and so authentic in a public way on social media isn't for everyone and also isn't for every business. So when I'm coaching music therapists on um starting their private practice and then delving into the social media marketing world, I, I remind them, you know, you need to keep a boundary, some distance between your personal life and your business life. If you are trying to get clients for your business on social media and you are a therapist, they probably shouldn't know everything about your life. And so for me, I'm, I, at this point, I'm trying to reach other music therapists. So I'm not worried about sharing my life with them. We're not, we don't need to um, have any HIPAA compliance or, you know, mm. keep information protected in any way. It's really just up to me. So I wasn't, I, I don't know. I feel like I've always kind of been that bold person. Maybe it's because I'm originally from New Jersey. I've just got that Jersey curl in me. I don't know. (laughs) But it is a practice. It's almost like you have to try it out and see how it feels and um, experiment. And then honestly, just force yourself to do it. That's like... (laughs) That's the, oh, best, about that. that's the best advice I can give you. Like take a video of yourself doing whatever the heck you're doing and don't even think twice about it. Just post it and then like deal with the aftershock. Okay. And then do it again. And I remember what, um, what really uh, made the difference for me to continue this way of, of, presenting myself online was I met a new friend. She's an amazing florist in Rochester. Um, and we were out for tea and she's like, Kim, I have to tell you the thing that made me fall in love with you was seeing you on your Instagram stories, eating chips and talking about how much (laughs) you love chips. (laughs) Like it's so dumb, but it's, it's who I am. I love chips. So (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> no I mean that's that, and that's what in some ways I aspire to because I want to show those that side of myself but then I'm like oh who would be really be interested in me you know I don't know hanging out with my kid and you know just sitting there watching tv vegging out you know so mm-hmm. in some ways I'm like, I can see the benefits of it and then at the same time some same time I'm like oh you know I'm I am critically thinking like oh who wants to see this nobody wants to see yeah, this right now. And, 
And what? maybe may, this is like the therapist brain in me, but maybe the better question to ask is not who wants to see this, but do I want to share this? Mm. Because then it becomes more about you and then you take back the control. You take you take that um, agency over your life and over the fun things that you enjoy and that you want to be and that you're doing in your life. And you're like, yeah, I love chips so much. And this is my life. So I'm just going to show people that I love chips. <laughs> That's like a silly example, but... So we'll move to the second book. Uh, there's no way of kind of connecting this chips and Marie Kondo. No, you know what? Actually, no, because actually it's all about finding your joy, find things that give you joy. And I think chips give you joy, clearly. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so with this book, what kind of made you want to kind of get rid of things? Because that's essentially kind of what it is, right? Just yeah. kind of minimizing your life. Right. Yeah, everyone probably knows about this book, but it's funny because when we first started, I thought that um, you were going to call this book out as my first one out about hashtag authentic. And um, we were talking about the burden of being a music therapist and having to explain what I do and how I do it and having people still not understand that, you know, that's a burden. And I was thinking about the stuff in my life, those corners of clutter, a pile of papers as this over my life. And um, I honestly don't know what made me pick it up. I mean, I've always been interested in organization. I love organizing. I love finding a good organizer, you know, going to the container stores, like, really fun for me. So I picked it up and then I fell in love and um, hearing her story about being a kid and always organizing and always cleaning, but always having trouble um, making that organization stick really connected with me and with my life because I have always had a messy room. Like out of my entire family, I was the one room where I had clothes and stuff and books everywhere that like you couldn't even see the floor. It was so bad. (laughs) I'm like, I can't believe I'm actually admitting that, but I guess it makes (laughs) sense for who I am. (laughs) And, um, and then I got married and my husband was much cleaner and much more organized than I was. And I'm like, Oh gosh, I gotta get better at this. Like, (laughs) I don't want my to be a burden for him even if it's not a burden for me now, there's like another person in my life. So, um, yeah, I picked this book up. I fell in love. She has her, um, her way of doing things like, okay, start with this, then go to this, then go to, but what I love about it is really gaining that skill of your intuition and knowing what things you love and what things you don't, or what things serve a purpose in your life and what things really don't. And you can get rid of it. And almost like giving your permission, yourself the permission to get rid of things is so helpful because my family is like notorious for holding on to things. And actually I, I told my mom to read that book and she's now going through the house and cleaning up. <laughs> she's like, Kim, I got rid of 12 bags of clothes. <laughs> So I'm like, oh, I'm so happy that this is helping another person. Um, 
And it was interesting too, because I have um, a good friend in town who um, simply, simply spaced or something like that. And she helps people organize and clean uh, their spaces. And I had her come over one day and she helped me go through my things. And I was like, you know, I have this closet and there's, it's like full of calligraphy items. Cause that's another thing that I did. I had a little calligraphy business for a few years when I was <laughs> burning out from music therapy and trying to get back to music therapy, I did calligraphy. Um, and then I have musical instruments and stuff everywhere. And she's like, well, let me just stop you there. It looks like the things, your stuff, your space is articulating what's going on in your mind and your heart. Like your life is in transition right now between businesses, between um, passions and your stuff and your space is like a mirror image of that. So it's just like looking at my stuff in a different way really opens my eyes and really gets me thinking like, do I need this? Do I love it? And so now the intuition is built up where I can just say yes or no. I'm like in awe of that because I, I'm, I can't, I say I'm like, I'm halfway there because <laughs> I, I don't hoard a lot of stuff, like little like items, but I hoard clothes and uh -huh. it's, and I find it really hard because I find clothes very sentimental. So I will be, and it's not like, oh, you know, wedding dress. Cause I don't even know where my wedding dress is at the moment, but <laughs> it's, it's the other things like, oh, I wore this when I was in London and I remember I had a good mm -hmm. time with it. And, you know, I, I wore it lots, so I must keep it. But then, you know, if I wore it, if I tried it on now, I wouldn't love it. But then I'm, I'm just so, I'm just so caught up on the sentimentality of it. So how do you separate from that? Well, it's cool because she talks about this in the book and it's like, wait, you're, you're speaking language. Like you're, you're, you're putting words to everything I'm thinking. Um, so she, she separates just clothes and sentimental things which can include clothes and then she talks about your pile of sentimental items is the last pile you should go through because that's the pile that you are intertwined with so she takes you through this process of you know you go through the things that don't matter okay kitchen utensils I mean for me that doesn't matter those are whatever build up this intuition to know if you really love it enough to keep it and if you do you should keep it you shouldn't give it away so there's like I I have a ton of sentimental items and what she says is you know maybe that that beautiful t-shirt that you took with you to New York City and you had a fun friends day and you will all maybe instead of wearing it maybe you put it on display and maybe it's not like decor in your house, but maybe you put it on display in the back of your closet so that every time you open your closet doors and you see that thing and you smile. So it almost changes the use, the purpose of that item for you. <clears throat> so do you still go buy it now? So do you still, when you buy things, are you being mindful about what you buy or do you just kind of, you buy it? You still buy like you used to, but then you just kind of declutter after. <laughs> I think that's more so what I do. I have I still have too much stuff, and I still have too many clothes. Like 
my husband's like, um, you're buying clothes again. I, like, remember that book that you read? <laughs> <laughs> so I think it's just an ongoing process, but at least now I'm grateful to have, um, some more skills to be able to know, like if I'm buying frivolously or not, you know? <laughs> and that's what I'm trying to do less of. I'm trying you know, I'm, I know that, you know, I, I love to, I love shopping. I love clothes. I love fashion, but it's like, I'm trying to be a bit more mindful and it's not that, Oh, you know, I buy a big ticket item. It's just being more like, okay, this, I love this. This is in this year for, you know, fall 2020, <clears throat> but then I realistically wear it. No. So then I can appreciate it, but then I, I just need to move on. So I'm trying to do more of that, but <laughs> it's not perfect. <laughs> yeah. And for me, like I, it's almost like I will try to teach myself how to love an item of clothes I should wear and should love, but it's almost like I need to still improve that part of me that says, okay, did this thing catch my eye or am I just buying? Cause I like it. You know, like that's a different feeling, something like standing out to you in this versus something that's like, oh yeah, this is nice. I could wear it. It's a good way to put it, actually. Mm -hmm. So this kind of takes into the, your next book, which is The Story of Stuff by Annie Leonard. Mm -hmm. And I had heard of this book. I'm sure it's, you know, I would be very interested in reading this. So why do you think we obsess over stuff? And we've talked about, you know, like the sentimental side of it. But why else do you think we obsess over having so much stuff? Yeah. I honestly think it, it stems from the top. I think it's the system of our culture. I think it's it's the way that the big companies that the people with a lot of money stay in control and keep a lot of money because we, we don't need, we don't need all the stuff that we have. Like I function with and yet it, there's like this thing inside of me that's like, Oh, but I want that shirt. Like, oh, I want that. I want those new pair of shoes, but I don't need them. Um, so I feel like the society that we live in, it, it almost has gotten us trapped in this terrible cycle. And I think in this book too, where it's talking about like, um, Oh, I wish I could find it right now, but it's, it's this, uh, um, make take cycle. We'll have to look it up, but it's basically the cycle of, um, things are produced and then we work, 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 work ourselves to death to afford these things. We feel like we need to buy, like, let's say like the newest television or the newest version of the iPhone. Like, do we really need that upgrade or is it just like this societal pressure that we feel like we need to fit in or we feel like we need the, the updated gadget so that we can do those extra things that really don't really matter that much. Um, so it's this, this evil cycle of buy and use your thing and then throw it out. And then you work so much to get the next thing. And it's just like forever and ever and ever a hamster on a wheel. And I think when I looked up, because I hadn't had a chance to read the book, I, she had like a little video about um about the book basically and she said you know I, what really resonated with me was when she said oh that 
we have no value. We see ourselves as having no value when we don't have stuff or don't buy new stuff, mm. but then we demonstrate our value by having it. And if we don't have it, then it's embarrassing. And I was like, oh yeah, that really makes sense because yeah, you feel pressure to get that new iPhone because someone's going to say to you, oh, that's it. What, what version is that? That's the six. Oh, you're on the six. Oh, okay. And it is, it's embarrassing because you don't want to be the one that's like, oh, I've got the old phone, you know, but mm-hmm. I think we have to think about the way that we, we think about things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And this book is so, so eye-opening because she's not just talking about stuff, but she's talking about how we pull the, um, the, the, the things from the earth that we need to make these items and then what the process is like to make the items and what the labor is like for the workers and what the toxins like what toxins are happening when we produce these items and so she goes through extraction taking these things out of the earth and what harm that's causing our earth and then production and then distribution you know having it in the stores and shipping things all around the world for what um and then consumption that's kind of like the conversation that we're having like that that need to consume that that need to get the new thing or oh my gosh my my um my t-shirt has a rip in it instead of sewing it or finding a friend who can sew to sew it for you (laughs) we're just like oh let's toss it you know it's it's easier and what's happened in our society it's is it's become less to toss the item and buy a new shirt than to fix the item, which what a travesty that is, because mm. what what we don't see, what we don't realize is that display of that T-shirt is actually costing us so, so much more than the 10 bucks or the 20 bucks it's going to take to have someone mend that piece of clothing. And I agree. I mean, I um, I feel awful because I would love for to try disposable diapers for my child. Like, I would have loved to, but then it just the convenience of having a, you know, a diaper that you buy from the box mm-hmm. is easy. And I, I, I'm conflicted because then I, I just think about oh, those poor diapers just piling up, and then I'm like, I'm one person with like I don't know how many thousands after she, you know, once she gets potty trained, mm-hmm. but then I'm just one person there's thousands and millions of mothers out there that are doing the same thing. And I just think, Oh my gosh, the resources of our earth is just not enough to, I don't know what the word is, but it's just like to, to bring it back into the earth, you know, like, like right. you said, it's, it's cycle, you know, mm-hmm. we, we extract, we make things, we buy things, we get rid of them out of sight, out of mind. Mm-hmm. And then we think about the process it takes to break it all down. And that's what I think is really sad. And I, I feel so conflicted because I'm like, oh, I'd love to do the disposable, but then, I'm just like, it's so convenient to use, you know, the, the regular diapers. So right. <laughs> and I think like this book is so eye, eye-opening that anyone who reads it, like their life will forever be changed. <laughs> um, but at the same time, it almost shows you that you need to know yourself what, what conveniences are most important in your life. You know, like, for example, my, my husband is a type one diabetic and 
okay, all of his diabetes supplies take plastic and all these mm-hmm. things and he has to throw it out and like go through it every two days. So that's a ton of, a ton of, um, garbage, but it's worth the convenience of his life. You know, like having him still here with us is worth it for us to use all this plastic and dispose of it. And I think what's, what's even more important than the little steps that we take over time to change our lives and to um, try not to pick the most convenient item every time is trying to change the policies that are set in place, trying to get the big businesses and the big manufacturing companies to change their ways because they're the ones really that are getting the system. They're the ones that are creating um, dangerous, toxic plastics that we and like the Annie Leonard in the book talks about trying to have these CEOs take a little more responsibility of okay not only how much you're making of this product but like what happens to it at the end of its life like are you are you managing that because right now it's going into landfills and taking mm-hmm. over poor communities and people are dying because of the toxins that are leached into the earth where they live. They produce the most amount of waste. And so she's like, if everyone were to just switch to a reusable water bottle, that would eliminate a a ton of this waste that's being produced. So let's see. I have friends ask me this question. I'm like, I don't even know where to start at this point. Okay, so I guess <laughs> when I first read the book, one of the first things that I, that um, caught my attention was plastics. So like the plastic water bottle, the plastic mm-hmm. Tupperware, and what happened, and, and not only like the waste of it and the consumption of it, but the toxic properties of it. Because when certain plastics are are heated to a certain degree, they release a toxic um, gas. And those things, those toxins can lead to um, cancer and reproductive issues down the road. And so that was kind of my number one priority, especially with food and, and, and definitely stop heating things up in plastic. Cause I remember like as a kid, Oh, you had that one like really hard um, plastic plate that you're like, okay, this one's safe in the microwave. <laughs> like, okay, now I'm not doing that anymore. Um, and then over time we've done more. So like I'm trying to buy um, less toxic makeup products and cleaning products and I'm trying not to buy as much stuff especially things that are I'm gonna throw away in like a week so then the things that I do buy I'm trying to buy more with things with better quality that will last me um and then the other things that you can do are you know when you go to the grocery store and you have a decision between peppers in the plastic and the bell peppers not in the plastic maybe you should pick the peppers that are not in the plastic and what's kind of gross about our society and the way that things have become is those bell outside of the plastic for whatever reason 
are more expensive than the peppers inside of the plastic. And it's just silly. (laughs) No, I agree. I think, yeah, sometimes I'm looking like, do you think people realize that that corn that's in the plastic is five bucks? But if I just shut this at home, this is going to cost me like two bucks less, you know? Mm -hmm. So I'm like, oh, why wouldn't you do that? But I think people like, like, my example with the diapers is I guess it's it's convenience you know it's all done for you you don't have to right. have to do it yourself and get your your kitchen messy or whatever mm-hmm. you know so I totally I can see but I you know I like I gave myself a pat on the back when I was like oh yes I, I always get the peppers that are not in plastic I put it in a little bag <laughs> yeah. my own little net bag so I was like oh, yeah and then me. and then like along with that try to buy things more locally so we have so many great farmers markets in Rochester and why not support local businesses buy fresh produce that has been grown in your area and then you're getting a better quality food overall anyway because it hasn't been shipped you know miles and miles across the country to get to you and it's a more whole food so it does just already have more nutrients so there's there's so there's so much to <laughs> but yeah we we've switched a lot of things and some things are or weird so like I've I've changed my menstrual products to a menstrual cup which especially when you first try it out can be very uncomfortable and very messy and gross and weird <laughs> and then like reusable pads things like that where I have to do the washing and I'm like but you know that little inconvenience for me is worth it than you know throwing something out all of the time um and having that destroy our planet and then we all die (laughs) (laughs) so like maybe for you with diapers and you know something too that this low waste or zero waste community talks about is um it doesn't have to be nothing. So maybe what you do with, with diapers is start with, okay, one diaper out of the week is going to be a disposable diaper. And I That's think I can wash that diaper within a week to use it again the next time. <laughs> I hope she doesn't do a poop that one time she uses it. Of course. <laughs> I could talk all day about this with you, mm-hmm. but let's go on to your next because I'm worried we're going to run out of time. I know, um, I do talk a lot. <laughs> no, no, but it's it's great. You know, that's I, I that's why I love doing this. But uh, your next book, Healing the Shame That Binds You by John Bradshaw. Um, so this book, again, is not a book I've read, but um, I feel like shame has been something of a regular feature in this podcast. Um, mm. So why do you think that a lot of us hold on to a lot of shame? Oh, that's a good question. I, I feel like shame is something that's passed down um, from our parents, from very well-meaning adults that help bring us up in our lives. And it's something also that's perpetuated in our culture, society. So like we were talking about getting the new iPhone and how, oh, you, you should feel bad if you don't have enough money to buy the new iPhone. And it's like, at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. It's just this, this piece of plastic, you know? (laughs) I mean, there's much more to an iPhone than plastic, but yeah, it's shame is, is something that's, that's rampant in our society. And, you know, I, I think something 
that will help the problem. And I think our society is shifting a little bit where going to therapy is more normalized now. And I think that's going to be a huge proponent of change in our society as a whole, in this culture of shame or bullying or putting people down. Um, And there's, I mean, there's so much more to that when it comes to like race relationships and, and the culture and the systemic um, injustices. But from a basic level, caring for your own soul and helping yourself is going to help the rest of the world. I actually started reading this book after my husband started going to therapy because he was dealing with post-traumatic stress disorder due to different deaths in his life. And um, we've had several people in our lives uh, die from suicide. And that's when he first started going to therapy. And the therapist suggested he read this book. And then he was telling me all about it. And I'm like, oh, my goodness, this amazing and you know as as a music therapist already I'm I'm already intrigued by the field of psychology like that was half my degree um so reading this was a a really good look into just the human experience and why people act the way they act and maybe the root issue or the root problem of what's causing this like let's say like outburst or rage, or, um, or like, you know, that, that one friend who talks so much, and you can't ever get a word in, and then you feel drained after you're talking with them. Like, it goes into things like that. Yeah. So, so this book, if you want to know more about why you do the things you do, why you feel different ways about different things, or people, or experiences, this will give you um, a good deep dive into the world of psychology. So when I read up about um, John Bradshaw, him, the author, um, he said that he was like an alcoholic or an addict or some sort. Um, and I felt like his shame was quite kind of like a an obvious representation of shame because obviously you're addicted to something that you shouldn't be and then there's shame attached to it. But what about when they're, you know, the shame that isn't as obvious, you know, like say your, your husband, he, you know, he hadn't committed suicide or he hadn't tried to. So there's no shame there, but there, there's this shame that he's internalizing because it's people that he were cl- he was close to. So does it make it harder to heal? Hmm. You know, that's a really good point. Um, I, I feel like in general, those, those things that you can't see. So like within the mental health world, like anxiety and depression, I think those things are, are harder to heal or harder to um, right support to live through because the people around us don't see it, don't recognize it, and don't know what to do with it. So it's less about someone internalizing shame from someone else or, or some other act or, or experience or grief or loss, but it's more about maybe what happens after that. Are you provided with the right support? Do you have a loving environment where you can express anger in a healthy way or sadness as long as you need to? Because if we don't express perfectly normal 
and they should be acceptable emotions in a safe way. We just bottle them up. And what happened in my own life is this kind of thing happened where, you know, like, like we talked about burnout with the field of music therapy, like these things had been piling on top of each other with loss and change, change and transition. And I have always been the kind of person to deal with my emotions on my own. And I, it's hard for me to cry in front of people and express what I need to express and create the boundaries that I need to create. And what happens over time is it bottles up until it has to come out in some other way. And what happened for me was that kind of came out in my life with anxiety and with panic attacks and debilitating panic attacks where like it was hard to recover and function the rest of my day after going into anxiety. But as I've been able to go to therapy and have the support that maybe I didn't have before and learn the ways to express myself and to cope with anxiety and with these different things, I haven't had panic attacks anymore. And one two is medication for a while I was on. And now I'm learning, okay, if I bottle this stuff up for too long and I don't cry when I need to cry, it's going to come out in a panic attack. And that's just like what, what happens for me. So I'm wondering if you, when you said therapy, did you go, did you think about doing music therapy as a way to express yourself? Or did you just go to regular kind of talking therapy? Oh, for myself, I just went to a regular uh, mental health counselor or psychotherapist. I always get confused with the different titles. Um, oh, sorry. <laughs> I, I didn't go to music therapy. No. Oh, did you consider it? <laughs> no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's funny because I, you know, I'm a music and I've been a musician my whole life, but music has not been the way that I express myself. Um, poetry actually is words. Um, which you could probably tell through my all my lengthy Instagram posts and my blog. <laughs> um, but actually now I'm I'm thinking about because I love art too, like the visual arts and calligraphy and painting and stuff. So I'm I, I'm um, just starting to think about you know if I want to find my next therapist, maybe I should look into a creative arts therapist, like an art therapist. That would be pretty cool. Do you think that so? Not for you, but then for other people that have, you know, have some attachment to shame. Can they use music therapy? Mm-hmm. Totally. Can yeah? Yeah, yeah. And there are some music therapists who are more trained in psychotherapy. So, so some music therapists are psychotherapists and also music therapists. And so they can go to that deeper level to take you through these processes of your mental health to help um, strengthen your coping skills and strengthen your um, expression of your needs and of these emotions. And um, yeah, I have, I have some clients that I'm doing that with. I don't, I personally, I am not a psychotherapist and I don't have the training for that, but there's still a lot that you can do with shame and expressing your emotions with music before even delving into psychotherapy. 
So there's a lot of there's a lot of options. In the book, you talked about healthy shame and toxic shame. So I was wondering, like with healthy shame, it's just like, you know, I think it was just having this realization that, oh, you know, you might have, I don't actually remember what it was, but but he does talk about healthy shame and toxic shame. But I was wondering if um if you found somebody that with a, with a similar shame to you, do you think it makes do you connect better as on a client and therapist level? You have like the best questions. <laughs> I, you know, it that is something that I am right now exploring. So as a music therapist, I get my own professional supervision for my work. And so those are some things that we talk about, like, oh, I wonder if you can relate with your client more because you've been through a similar experience. And not that I'm going to bring up that experience because, you know, in therapy, the therapist doesn't bring up their own issues, but at least you can come to the therapy room with more empathy and with more experience and with more knowledge about the very real thing that's happening. So, yeah, I, I definitely think that there might be maybe a quicker connection made or, or rapport is built faster or easier if I have that lived experience myself. So like, say for instance, um, I've done a lot of work in hospice care. If I'm working with a family who's, let's say their mother is, is dying, I, I feel like that family would trust me more knowing that I have been through loss and death myself within my own family Mm. so when they are crying and when they're a mess I can be like yeah it's okay I've been there too that's like like that's a normal experience no I agree I agree with that totally Mm. and but it's interesting how you said that you wouldn't necessarily bring it up but then it's something that you can bring to the table uh, to help with that yeah so I so this kind of goes into your I think we don't have time for your Sixth book, but we have time for the last book, which is Buy Yourself the Fucking Lily. So I'll say the explicit. That's okay. <laughs> By Tara uh, Schuster. Mm-hmm. And I felt like this is a good book, actually, just to come right after what we we're talking about. You yeah. going into therapy and looking into, um, you know, ways to kind of express yourself. So was this book a way to kind of express yourself in a funny way? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> I Okay, so I bought this book just on a whim. I hadn't heard of it, but I was in Target, as a good white girl is, and <laughs> and it had, okay, so I was judging the book by its cover, because I guess I do that, and it's okay, and it was this beautiful black cover with these bright, like, neon-colored flowers, and so it caught my eye, and I'm like, oh, I wonder what this book is about, so I opened it, I'm like, skimming through, I'm like, this looks like it's a good one. So I didn't buy it for any purpose, but then when I bought it, I was like, oh, I'm so, I'm so grateful that I bought this because I, I have loved reading it and I'm, I'm actually not all the way, I'm almost all the way through now. Um, but Tara Schuster's hilarious. And what I love about it is, um, just her writing style. She is funny. She is witty. She, she says it like it is. Um, so like the, the subtitle is, so it's by yourself, the fucking lilies and other rituals to fix your life from someone who's been there. (laughs) I just love it. And then even her, um, chapter titles, like this one, um, 
So it says, when life hands you a lemon, stick a pen in it and turn it into a bong. (laughs) And she just crosses out the title. Like, on the page, it's crossed out. And under it, it says, nah, don't (laughs) self-medicate. And then she gets into really um, real and intense conversations about where she's been, what she's gone through, and what's helped her along the way. But in such a fun, playful way. I... I so enjoy her writing style and it reminds me sometimes of my writing style too. So it's like, I feel connected to her in that way, but yeah, it's, it's, it's a great one. And it's interesting. You said that you just picked it up on a whim because mm-hmm. I going through all your other books, I was like, Oh, this book makes sense because I feel like a lot of your books are about kind of cleansing and self-cleansing and mm-hmm. self-care. So I thought, Oh yeah, this book makes sense to be there. But then now you're saying you had it on a whim, but then it, <laughs> I've said, I think I've said this with other guests that sometimes the, the book finds you, you know, you, you don't necessarily find a book, the book finds you and it, it resonates with you at a certain point in your life because that's kind of what you need and you didn't realize it. Mm-hmm. Um, how would you say this is different from other self-help books? Is it because it, it's so kind of brash and kind of like tell you how it is? Yeah, it's, it's very real. And like, I feel like some other self-help books may just skirt over something and Tara just calls it out. So like, um, like even the way of saying, okay, so she calls herself tea money in the book. (laughs) (laughs) So like this one chapter is tea money's guide to thank you cards. The best selfish thing that you can do. And she talks about how, okay, this nice thing for others can actually be selfish to you because maybe you need to send the card more than the other person needs to receive it. And it's like so deep, (laughs) but in a beautiful, funny way. Uh Um, And I love how she contrasts those two feelings where it's like the heavy with the light, the, the deeply intellectual with the funny. Um, And it makes it for such a good, fun read the chapters are short. Um, she has great examples and it's almost like a, um, like when I think about this book and I tell my friends about it, I say it's, it's kind of like a coming of age book where it's like, okay, you get to your twenties and you're like, what the hell is life? And then you get to the end of your twenties and you're like, oh shoot, like I have to be an adult now. And how do I do that? And so she takes you through her process, like her story of that, and then goes through like the top like 10 tips for like adulting. Like, you know, something that's helped me in my life just get out of bed and feel good about my day is making my damn bed, you know, (laughs) like one stupid thing that your parents always told you to do. And now Tara's like, I know. You don't want to hear this, but making your bed will probably really help the rest of your day feel better. <laughs> As I'm saying that, looking at my messy bed, that's not made. <laughs> so the, the right piece of advice at the right time, isn't it? <laughs> right. <laughs> so when I was looking at this book, there was some critique that, and you brought it up, that it was aimed at kind of people in their 20s. So I, I was wondering if there were other things in the book that can make other people relate, people that are, you know, slightly older or that are, you know, not having so much trouble with adulting. (laughs) Right. Well, honestly, I think this could be for any age because no matter what age we are, there are still things in life that can be difficult. And um, 
it's almost like, you know, someone who's like, I'm only 30, but someone who's older might read this book and be like, okay, you know, I've been through all of this already. I've been through this in my life, but maybe what they take from it is like, oh yeah, that one tip, that one piece of advice is really helpful. Like I forgot about it. It's almost like helping someone um, come back to those truths that they know, or come back to those like little tips and tricks for adulting that can really help even later in life. Um, and, and she talks a lot, like not only just regular adulting things um, and creating habits and things like that, but she also talks so much about relationships. So, you know, like what friends are the best friends to have and, you know, it's okay to let your friendships ebb and flow. And if this friendship is taking more out of you than giving to you, it's okay to let that go. And, you know, be really picky and choosy about your friendships and your relationships. And I think that that can apply really to anyone because we all find ourselves in these relationships and you're like, man, why am I friends with this person? It's really like... It, I feel like I don't get a word in or I don't feel like myself around them. So this can kind of bring you back to, no, it's okay. You can create boundaries. That's really healthy for you. <laughs> so which piece of advice did you like the most or which one kind of had the most impact? Oh my gosh. I don't even know. I, so I'm at the end of it now, but um, I mean, one of the things that stuck out to me was making my bed <laughs> <laughs> because it was that one thing like growing up in a messy home and never like cleaning up after myself. It's the one thing that I tried and I, I didn't like, like it was the one time where I didn't do it like begrudgingly where I was like, you know what? Tara says it's good and she won't tell you something that she doesn't really believe. And like, you know, I don't think she would tell me this if she didn't actually feel like it made a difference. So, and then I would make my bed every morning and it's like, man, this really does like help the rest of my day. It puts me, starts me from scratch. And it's almost like she brings to light these things that, that maybe like the person who is adulting the best they just do it automatically and they don't think about it. But then for other people like me who grew up in a house and never really learned these really good habits, I didn't know how um, life-changing that small act of making my bed could be. <laughs> so I love how she brings these little fun little things um, into this book and, and shows you how to enjoy your life more by being more honest. So I have one last question for you. Mm -hmm. uh, would you use any of this advice or do you use any of this, any of the advice that she gives in the book to your, with your clients? Oh, um, <laughs> you know, I never thought about it, but yes, depending on, on what my client's goals are and what they're working through, for sure, I would bring, I would bring this stuff up, you know, if, if they are, so, so something that, that, um, maybe a, a quick tip for the listeners out there with music and 
it makes complete sense, but something so impactful is listening to music as uh, like transition, a transition tool, a tool for transition. So I could see, you know, taking the making your bed example, I could see it being really helpful for someone who has depression and struggles to get out of bed, giving them this, this tool to say, okay, you know, not only do I want you to try listening to your favorite song that we've listened to together, that, that you connect you feel most alive. So turn that on first thing in the morning. And then while you're doing that, make your bed. And those two things um, in conjunction with each other will help you start your day on the right foot and help curb those um, low depressive feelings that might be hitting you first thing in the morning. Not what I was expecting, but actually really good advice. Mm. I was like, oh, actually such good advice like using it as a transition mm-hmm. i mean i don't have any problem making my bed in the morning but i can see where other i'm areas... so glad that you have that still covered because i do not you know i have to agree with her that making your bed because that's the first thing i do in the morning i make my bed mm-hmm. and it doesn't you just feel like you've completed your day because you're like well if i've made my bed everything else is good you know so i can tell where that advice comes from yeah but uh it's... no I, I love the idea of the transitions Mm-hmm. And, and that's a piece of advice too, that I, that I give for, um, I work a lot with family members, caregivers, and people living with Alzheimer's or dementia. And right now I actually do sessions with the Alzheimer's Association through telehealth. One of the things that I tell the caregivers is, you know, if, if bathing is really hard for your loved one to do, or if it's really hard to get them from eating dinner to then going to the couch or going to the bedroom, put on some music as transition and have that be a cue every day. Okay. This it's time up or, you know, have that be a cue for bathing. Like this isn't too bad. I can be in the moment and hear the song that I love. And it's going to take my mind off of this thing that I hate. So it's kind of like a, a trickster way of using music in your life. I'm trying to think of a trickster way to do it with my toddler. Yes. I'm like, oh, yeah, he doesn't really go to bed. So I'm like, oh, maybe I'll play some relaxing music on the way up to, right. to her bed. Yeah, yeah. Or you can write your own song, have them help you create a song that's like, okay, you know, when we song, it's time to go to bed. There's so many, so many ideas out oh. there. <laughs> oh. Well, thank you so much, uh, Kip, sorry. I appreciate it so much that you came on and you shared your experiences and your stories. Um, where can people get a hold of you if they want to know more about music therapy or if they want to get in contact with you for um, a session? Yes, well, I'll direct you to my website, kipcast.com. All the info's there. You can see me doing music therapy in action. Um, and then if you want to get to know me more as a person, uh, hop on Instagram. I'm on Instagram all the time. My handle is Kim Best. Thank you again. <laughs> Thanks for having me. Thank you so much for listening. And if you love this episode, let me know in the comments or you can email me at thebtmm at gmail.com. If you have a guest in mind, or if you'd like to be featured, then drop me an email at the same address. That's thebtmm at gmail.com. You can also follow me on Instagram at thebtmm, where you'll find out what books I'm reading, my hashtag challenges, and next week's guests. See you then.